0: I know I'm going to come in here sounding like a horse rat because I'm using like my old ass webcam microphone. I don't even know what I he sound said like. You said a
1: horse rat. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I don't even know what that is. <laughs> hey. Hello. I'm Sarah. And I'm Nathaniel. And this is
2: to be completely transparent. All right, welcome back everyone. Thanks for joining us today. Today, we will have a guest. Um, So we do have Jeff here, and we will be talking about wealth inequality, wealth gaps. We're gonna dive into that topic a little bit later. Um, But Jeff, I'd like to start with you and have you introduce yourself. Tell us a little bit about yourself now.
0: Yeah, sure thing. So my name is Jeff Dwyer. Uh, I have known Nathaniel for a very long time. We are in the same pledge class together. So I've known him since he was a little baby, but I currently work uh, at the Department of Agriculture. I'm an economist there. I work on trade disputes and in my master's uh, thesis, I wrote a little bit about sort of wealth dynamics and the impacts that policies have had on the growing income inequality and wealth distribution uh, effects that we see today. And I know last week you guys talked about the minimum wage. And so I feel like this is a really good follow-up topic that maybe we can dive a little bit into and have some fun with and maybe learn a little thing or two.
1: Totally agree. I'm I'm super excited for this because I think this is like our first opportunity that we've had to sort of like continue another topic. So instead of just doing like a one off episode we're we're furthering the conversation, which I'm super excited about. And Jeff is our resident expert here. So I'm excited to hear his thoughts, but you know what we have to do before that, we got to do the hot takes. We got to do the hot takes. Jeff, did you think of one?
0: I have two, but I I know which one (gasps) I'm going to go with.
1: Okay. Okay. Well, I'm going to, I'll kick us off and then I'll, and then I'll pass it, pass it around. So my my hot take this week is um, inspired by the fact that things are starting to open up and I feel like people are going out and when they're going out, they're like trying to be all trendy, wear some cool clothes, wear some new fashion. This whole movement with the like resurgence of the Y2K fashion, like the late 90s, early 2000s fashion, and I'm speaking mo- mostly for Women and people who wear more feminine clothing, I don't understand it. I simply cannot get behind it. But I do want to caveat and say that wear whatever makes you happy, like wear whatever feels good, live your absolute truth. But like for me, those were dark, dark years. And so I'm just like a little traumatized that they're bringing it back. Like why are low rise jeans coming back? Those little baby doll tops? Like I just, I'm scared. I don't love it. And that's my hot take. Sorry if that makes me lame and old and not trendy, but that's how I feel today.
2: We respect it. I
0: I, honestly, that that was was
2: fine. I'm not
0: upset. I do not want to think about wearing the types of clothes that I wore back in the 2000s. That. Is a sad site for my Facebook page, and I'm probably gonna go back here and, and delete some of
1: those. I mean, for the people who can pull it off, like again, live your best life. Like I support you. It just scares me to see it all in the stores and things. I'm like, I I can't understand why that is what what we're bringing back right now. Like that was it. That's what we decided. Like there's so many other things. There's better things to put back into the into the loop. But it's okay. We'll be fine. We'll make it through.
0: What's like the worst one, the single worst one that you've seen? I'm curious.
1: Oh, like fashion choice? Yeah. Um, I think – so for me and my body type and the way that I like to dress, the worst is the low-rise jeans and the teeny, teeny, tiny sunglasses because those look so weird on my face. Like well, the, the low-rise jeans is, a, is self-explanatory. Like I should – never be forced to wear anything but high rise ever again. But the tiny, tiny sunglasses like freak me out and they don't look good on my face. I look like a little bug. I've tried it because other people look cool, but I can't, I simply can't do it. I'm honestly
0: probably only wearing sweatpants like forever <laughs> even even in work I might try to pull it off once
1: I support you I support that fully
0: honestly I don't think I own that I went through my my closet the other day to, to get rid of clothes before before I move and I just got rid of almost all of my adult pants they're they're pretty much all gone
1: <laughs> yeah I, I think that when I do have to start going back into the office at any point I'm going to have to fully like rebuy all of my real person clothes because I haven't needed them. All right. Well, that was my hot take this week. So, Jeff, what what is your hot take? Let us know.
0: My hot take. So I, I honestly really put a lot of thought into these because I so hearing some of Nathaniel's I kind of just made me mad. Like,
2: <laughs> wow. sometimes I just
0: think it's like that. You, yeah. I, sometimes I think you just say objective falsehoods and call them hot takes. <laughs> <laughs> Damn, I've hurt you with some of these hot takes. I, like hot takes are opinions. I get that, but sometimes they just got me. They get me upset. But I respect. I respect your individual uh, individuality, Nathaniel. Thank you. Thank I you. Respect I respect that, that. You, you hate cheese, wear socks when you sleep, and just like being really warm. I, I don't get that
1: wait jeff did you vote in our poll did you vote in our last poll
0: yeah give me the 10 degrees every day 10
1: degrees that's hilarious
0: absolutely (laughs) asinine (laughs) man it's been like 95 here and when you live in a like a 60 year old building like i do and it's all like central heating and you have no air conditioning when it's 90 degrees out and opening your window only makes it worse you'll wish it was 10 degrees outside.
1: I, I have to say I agree. I do agree in that, in that situation for sure.
2: I respect it. Go on, proceed.
0: All right, so my hot take is, it's, it's not the craziest one, but I think going to the movies by yourself is 100 percent the best way to go to a movie. No friends, nothing. By yourself, middle of no the day. Friends. <laughs> No friends.
1: No friends.
0: No friends. No friends. Absolutely <laughs> none of those. Okay. Middle of the day, like I I get everyone will think that is the saddest thing ever is just (laughs) watch someone leave by themselves from a theater in the middle of the day. That's my dream. I I love that.
1: (laughs) I honestly don't think I've ever gone to a movie by myself. That is something I've never done.
0: You'll never go with friends
2: again. I promise.
1: (laughs) (laughs) He's like, this will change your life.
2: (laughs) I have went to a movie by myself so many times.
1: Yeah, I was going to say, work, Nathaniel, you do that.
2: Saturday, Sunday. Yeah, like I've seen like 49 movies by myself. It's
0: the best, right? Like, why would you ever try to plan uh, with someone else ever again when you go to the movies alone? <laughs> <laughs> I sounds so I, sad.
2: <laughs> I don't mind going to the movies with other people, but I don't put a lot of effort into it anymore. Like... If i'm like hey yeah. you want to see this movie at seven and they're like oh like what about nine okay i'm going at seven by myself and <laughs> story like and then i'm fine seven was cool like whenever it is i just i go and then you know the amc stubs a list like i could see so many films a week and i just went to every
0: one Dude, movie pass died so a list could fly i am exactly <laughs> it it's the best $20 a month I spend I mean not this past year it's just been a waste of money but now right. that I can go again it's it's the greatest I I just don't know Sarah go to a movie by yourself
1: I will I'll do that there's actually an AMC like literally across the street from my building so I will do that at some point
0: point. and like all of our movie tastes have just been completely destroyed by COVID like I will see any piece of shit Now, like, I don't, it does not need to be worth my time. I'll just go, go by yourself, see anything you want to see. I promise you'll never text a friend again saying, Let's go see this movie. You'll just go.
1: I'm going to try it out because next time there's like a rainy day or something, I, it literally will take me like five minutes to get to this movie theater. I'm going to do it. But I also, like, don't really, I don't really watch a lot of movies. Nathaniel knows this about me. I'm like really not a movie watch her like you asked it's me if one I of seen your flaws any... i know you asked me if i've seen any movie and i'm like nope don't know her but i'm gonna try to change that so okay i'll let you know once i do it i'll let you know how how it went all right
0: i i look forward to hearing about that because i'm telling you there's very few things that i will say are life-changing going to a movie on your own schedule you get any seat you want you don't need to find one where there's like four next to each other
1: that's true it
0: do whatever you want. Put your phone down. It's it's the best. It's it's the best. I I I recommend.
1: You'll be the first person I text when when I do it. As I'm leaving the theater, I'm gonna text you my reaction. Okay,
0: I I look forward to it. I'm excited.
1: <laughs> All right, Nathaniel, what's your hot take?
0: So I'm gonna be
2: completely transparent with you. Um, it was it was difficult to think of one. However, what naturally came to my mind, and it's because we have this weekend i've had a conversation about olives um, with someone who hates olives jeff why are you i feel like you're already stressed no need to be stressed <laughs> i know i'm I gonna already right.
0: on olives so
2: don't worry <laughs> the second best pizza topping is by far olives green olives specifically or you know what if if a pizza just had olives on it absolutely would eat it
1: all day i am absolutely incredibly shocked that you like olives
2: why? Why? For I why? don't,
1: honestly, I don't really know. I'm just, <laughs> that, like, my visceral reaction was just shock. Like, genuinely. Like, I don't know. I just feel like you ha- you're you particular. It's not like you, you're picky. You're just particular. And so I'm surprised that olives made the cut for you. I feel you, though. I love olives. So I'm wow. like you 100%.
0: I thought 100%. I would be the only one that likes olives because anytime,
1: no, they're so good. I
0: have anytime I have friends where like it's just like drinking wine and I, you know, charcuterie board, right? Get olives, cheese. I mean, not for Nathaniel, but like anyone else, right, right. Like everyone, I I buy olives and I literally sit there eating them by myself and I just probably everyone looks at me funny when I say I like olives. So I'm with you. I'm genuinely shocked.
1: Look so at we, us. We all like lovers. olives? That's cool. That's fun. <laughs> wow.
2: I thought it was going to be controversial here. And you, you guys are like, oh, that's that's excellent.
1: <laughs> no, when I used to go over to my grandpa's house for like family luncheons and stuff, like like good Jews, we had a bagel buffet. And we have like all of the toppings and whatever, like the lox and the cream cheese and all the good stuff. And then they would literally get a bowl of olives just for me. They'd be like, "Oh no, no, no! Don't touch that. That's Sarah's bowl of olives." And I would eat my bagel and an entire bowl of black olives. It's good shit.
0: It it honestly, it's I'm so happy. We are the only three people I know <laughs> that like olives outside of like. I know everyone. All-
1: everyone's gonna listen to this and be like, "These freaks! What?"
0: Wow, this. Look at this! I feel very
1: comfortable now. Who
0: would have thought?
2: <laughs> Not <laughs> me.
1: Not me either. I love that. I love that. Well, that's—I love that you're just continuing with the food hot takes, Nathaniel. I really appreciate. I that. I
2: know. I was. I know. It, that's because I couldn't think of one earlier, so I was like, you know what? Default food. So um, we'll try. To, we will truly try to change it up in the future, but I can't promise when that will be.
1: It's on brand. I like it all right nathaniel thank you for another food hot take yet again we love that about you um but let's go ahead and and hop into our topic for today So I guess, Jeff, we'll start by asking you something we ask a lot of our guests, which is, and you sort of alluded to this in your intro, but, you know, why is the uh, the concept of wealth inequality and and this, you know, the economic uh, divide that we have in this country? Why is that important to you? Like, why did you want to come talk to us about this topic?
0: Yeah. So, you know, I know it's probably a really strange thing for like an only child white kid from like suburbia to be like, why are you so into this topic? Like, how did this (laughs) impact you? But I've just always been really interested in how the world works. And I know you guys talk about, you guys have talked about like capitalism in the past and I've, you know, we all kind of grow up in this is how society works. There are winners and losers and it's Always do to like how hard you work, and that you know that's obviously b- bullshit. But I just like always found it so curious how there can be such different realities for people, and I think it really sparked, especially around the twenty sixteen election uh, and and the time you know the build up of the primaries and that, and like these like huge populist movements, and uh, one one side being very much white anger, you know the traditional like blame it on every minority that's, you know, alive and blame it on all these, you know, other th- like immigration and, and, and stuff. Uh, but there was another populist movement that Bernie Sanders was, was talking about and speaking for uh, in terms of like the complete collapse of sort of like the social contract that, you know, we live together and how the wealthiest country on earth can have such huge discrepancies between Two groups of people uh, between like rich and poor, but like looking into how these these divides and how this how this happened. And so uh, that was you know we were we were in undergrad uh, my senior year, and then when I went for my masters in an econ, I was given the ability to explore that both in in class and on my own, but with proper tools um, in terms of like how how to think and how to research and and learn about about these issues and looking at the the history of how not only we got to the more general gap between rich and poor, but within black versus white poor, where that came from, how the African-American community has such a different experience. I mean, they obviously have a much different experience, but looking at what actually happened back in like the explosion of like the American economy that caused such like this huge, I mean, that we're seeing now, this didn't just happen. And racism exists in a variety of different way. I mean, it's not just... You know the loud angry nazi walking down you know walking in charlottesville like a lot of it is very suit and tie in rooms writing legislation and so how does that play out in the real world and that you saw most evident back in like the late forties, early fifties, particularly when the United States asserted, like began to assert itself as like a global economic superpower, because that's sort of where it became exponential, where these gaps really started to arise between different groups. And then also, which is general wealth inequality.
2: Okay. So I want you to define a couple of things for us, um, just because, you know, there may be some general terms and directions that might not be as clear. Um, so talking about net
0: worth and then just wealth overall, how do you define those? Okay. So I think the main difference to me between net worth and wealth is net worth is a very technical term. I mean, pretty simply, you know, assets minus liabilities. But to me, wealth is a more, I define wealth very differently than net worth, not because they like, if you looked them up in a definition, they'd share probably the same wording, but to me wealth is like an expression of like freedom for opportunity that's granted to a privileged uh, group of people it's definitely not shared and it is definitely a very like large gaps of what people are and are not allowed to do it so i look at wealth as more of like this intangible like version of, of like freedom and that's how, that's sort of how I look at it. So like freedom in terms of like, where you're allowed to grow up, what kinds of schools you're allowed to go to your ability to fail without this impacting your everyday life, you, you know, actually, Nathana, you sent me a really good summary of what it looks like. And if you don't mind, I'd like to read it, because I think it does a really good job, sort of like putting it in a very direct terms, which is that wealth is a safety net that keeps a life from being derailed by temporary setbacks and the loss of income, and that family wealth allows people to access housing in safe neighborhoods with good schools, thereby enhancing the prospects of their own children, and that it affords people opportunities to be entrepreneurs and inventors. And then at the end of a person's life, because wealth is taxed so much lower, it only compounds from one generation to another, and you know, wealth begets more wealth. So it's it's not quite as simple as just like a number. Uh, even though we see it, someone's wealth. You think like, oh, Elon Musk's wealth. He's like worth 200, whatever two hundred billion dollars or some ridiculous number. I think wealth is more of the like not seen, not on like a you don't see it on a bank statement. So I, I would I would use those definitions to to separate the two. Think of net worth is like the number, but wealth is like the privilege that comes with it.
1: I really really like how you described that and I think that that's something that is a concept that is important for people to understand, especially as they're learning more about the economics of this country and the structures and systems in place that you know have allowed for a certain group of people to build their wealth over these generations, right? And that wealth is beyond just financial component it is literally its quality of life its access its privilege its resources it's it's tied to a dollar obviously but you know it is so much more than that so i really liked how how you put that and i think that that's a concept that you know is is something that i'm still learning about and learning all the implications of but is really important to understand especially in this conversation that we have about Inequality and inequity in the country when it comes to wealth and growing wealth and passing on wealth, you know. And I think you know the something that I wanted to to play off of was just to pick your brain a little bit more about this idea of generational wealth or generational poverty, right? Because I think that they're both both of those are are real, um, and both of them kind of go hand in hand. As one group continues to compound their wealth, the other group is then continually disadvantaged. So do you have any thoughts about about that concept or you know maybe you can throw in some social mobility and things like that as well. I'm curious to hear your perspective.
0: Well yeah I mean I think the the biggest thing is that a lot so most times opportunity is driven based on like where you're from uh, and the types of access to one connections that come with where you grow up. I mean where you go to school has a huge impact. And a lot of the time, I mean schools are funded by local taxes and local taxes are a function of the income brackets in those areas. And so this concept of like generational poverty and, and, and the same and the same works with generational wealth too, right? If you're in an area you're surrounded by well to do parents, you go to private school, well, you're going to know the kids that had similar backgrounds in school, you'll graduate, these kids go to top colleges they connect with professors there who know uh, you know other wealthy people and it it just continues and that's the biggest advantage mostly of you know ivy league schools which typically favor well-to-do families you find yourself in positions where you just know the right people and that's become more and more clear through lived experiences that it's not all that important on what you know it's more important who you know and who can get you to the right places in life, whether it's your career or just having access to the right opportunities, that those things compound. And then there's also the concept of generational wealth and inheritance. Around a third to a half of all wealth in the United States is inherited. And so when you have the idea of where wealth gives you the ability to withstand lapses in income, and we and we saw this During COVID, I mean, this was like a very predominant issue. It was like wealthy people had the means to take advantage of opportunities that poor people were getting laid off from. So when, I mean, just look at the stock market, right? I mean, it cratered wealth. People had capital. They took advantage. Poor people were unemployed. So it's further evidence of like wealth begets wealth. And we also saw this during the financial crisis, the, the concept of getting people into homes using predatory practices, that, which are now not allowed, but at the time were, they lost their houses and big investment firms that represent capital from the wealthy class bought up houses and now rent them and it became a practice. And so those types of things further enforce like generational wealth versus those that once you can move up, it's not always guaranteed. And when you go down, sometimes you stay down. And we've seen that over and over throughout history, especially since the deregulation era of the 1980s. But I mean, the basic concept is that when you have wealth, you have the opportunity to take advantages of more wealth creation, and when you don't, you're stuck, unless you are one of the lucky few that find the ability to move upwards through, I mean, and and in most cases, a lot of it is luck. I, I, I don't think enough people properly value the role luck plays in in our life in terms of our successes. And I, I know wealthy people definitely don't always value that correctly, but it, it does, it's, it's very impactful. Sometimes it just takes, I mean, if you start a business, you don't know that it's going to become anything, no matter what you put on a piece of paper or an Excel spreadsheet. Sometimes it's luck. And most of the time it's luck. So the idea that one can just work their way out of poverty is a bit a bit ridiculous when you look at the access to the means to raise yourself out of lower income areas. I mean that's just how our economy has been built. You know, government funding does not go towards the the areas that actually help them grow out of poor neighborhoods. I mean, our education system is laughably underfunded, especially in lower income areas that are by design have been a place where minority communities live and that's just i mean and you see i have the data i mean you see it in wealth statistics the white average white family has 10 times the wealth that a black family has and that's tied to purely the ability to accumulate capital over someone's life and that's just how capitalism has become in the united states
2: i'm glad that you brought up the luck piece because that is something that people kind of vehemently deny they very much so, grasp on to the the bootstraps story. Well, if my parents were poor and now I'm wealthy, or you know I make great money, like everyone can do it. You just have to be determined, and you have to do this, and you have to do this. And they just ignore just so many pieces of the puzzle that really do have to still fit in place in order for that to be everyone's reality. Like, unfortunately, there may be someone who had a, just a terrible upbringing, and there was this success story that led to them getting fantastic opportunities or now they own a very lucrative business like yes like it has happened it's possible to do but the fact that we default that to be the norm like okay well just do it that wholeheartedly ignores luck in the equation and even even in some of those scenarios like people still had help like it, it's very very difficult to grow up in a you know fully impoverished neighborhood not have your basic needs met and just grow up thriving in every single aspect in order to then produce enough wealth for your kids and your kids kids I like guess it's, it's just not common so I, I'm glad you did bring that up and then the other thing is the inheritance piece that it's all tied together like I mean it's 2021 probably I mean, in, in our parents' lifetimes, segregation was legal. There were all of these laws and systems that were in place that were actively preventing people from doing the things that they want to do. So, of course, like generational wealth is going to be a huge, huge inhibitant of people keeping money within like their family. Like not even 50, 60, 70 years ago, there were probably a bunch of white people who had all this money within families from another century ago, when people were actually slaves at that point. Of course, they weren't going to be able to inherit all of this money to then buy property and buy businesses and buy this and buy that. So, like, it it's it just seems so clear that that's what has happened over the last several decades or the last century, and it's it's like people just do not want to admit that and start working on any solutions so I I really you know agreed with those
1: nobody wants nobody wants to acknowledge the problems and let alone work towards the solutions but
2: do you think that do you think that people are aware truly like in their heart of hearts are like actively aware or do you think that because they've lived this whole life the way it is, they're like, absolutely not. And they have told themselves this story that, oh no, like it's literally just hard work. Just don't be a piece of shit and you'll succeed. <laughs> like, do you, like, or do you think it's both? You think some people are like, damn, I think that is, I mean, maybe it is generational wealth.
0: You know, I would like to believe, I would, I wish people did know, but I'm gonna be honest. I think a lot of people, use the bootstraps thing as a crutch a lot i mean it's kind of indoctrinated in us as we grow up i mean the the idea i mean it like a capitalist society right i would say the the best version of it for people right would be like you actually do get compensated for how hard you work but i mean to be honest i mean if you're an employee you're exploited but and i mean it's just you know how we grow up we're taught like you work and you get what you earn. And I think a lot of people just rely on it because like, that's what I was taught. That's right. And we are not taught these things in school. I mean, shoot, like this last year has been eye-opening for white people everywhere of all ages and the like the history of racism and the atrocities committed against the African- American community and it was like a lot of people literally never heard these things before I mean yeah I, I but I, I was with my my parents this past weekend and I think the His, the History Channel is doing something on the Tulsa massacre yeah and my parents literally didn't know that existed
1: I I mean I didn't really either. Like I yeah. was, I was looking it up because I, again, I also saw a news blurb about it, but it was, I mean, the day that we're recording this, it was a hundred years ago today that that occurred. I don't remember learning about that in school, no. you know, and, oh. and, and that, I think that's important. I think Nathaniel's question is valid. Like, do people actually, are they actually aware of this and they're just choosing to ignore it? Or can we, can we say that a, a big group of them, or, you know, maybe not a big group, but at least some genuinely do not know, and they genuinely believe this narrative that we are told from childhood, right? And and so I think that that's important to acknowledge is, and, and that is by no means an excuse for any of the behaviors or any of the support for these horrible policies, but it is a big piece when it comes to learning about acknowledging and then addressing this inequality issue and as we say in every single episode like capitalism and this greed and this world that we live in that is so money driven not having a good grasp of the reasons behind this inequality and the implications of this inequality is very very detrimental to moving forward as a society so, you know, I, I think that this is this conversation is good and it's never it's we're never going to have enough time to touch on all of the the pieces of it. But I think that this talking about this, starting this conversation is is crucial in hopefully in our lifetime, seeing some of this be changed. So I know that you really like to talk about the history of of this topic and to give background of folks. And I think that, you know, this is a good opportunity to do that as an educational piece. So, you know, maybe if you want to, I know we're kind of bouncing around all over the place, but maybe if you want to kind of go back a little bit and give us sort of like the progression of wealth inequality over time in the United States and and tell us kind of how this has been literally built into our government and our society. Yeah.
0: So I would say the best place to start is just looking at the general dynamic between capital and labor and so i mean the general idea right no matter what you're doing i mean let's just say you know a worker is making um, like t-shirts or something right so that's carrying out a duty in itself and then capital right is providing financial resources for the equipment to to make that happen And in in the past, capital was making about 60% and labor was 40. And in the time since then, that number has shifted to about 70% to 30%. Now, I know 10% doesn't seem like terribly much, but when you consider the whole of a US economy, 10 percentage points is a really, really large number. And so what happens is that you'll have You'll, you'll end up having bigger splits between who does what work and how much they're compensated, and and that's because as more money shifts towards capital away from labor, more is invested, and what what's what we've seen is it goes towards automation and technology, and what that does is it even more polarizes the types of work that labor does, and it removes a lot of jobs like like middle income jobs, right? That you think like an accountant uh, and what it does is it shifts more people working in either high, super high skilled. I don't really like the term high and low skilled work, but towards those that do like highly technical, like specialized work. Think like you know software engineers or like industrial design. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you have well in today's economy, Uber drivers. And think about how those two different classes of workers are treated. I mean, Uber just got just want a case, they get to they don't have to provide any benefits at all to their drivers, on top of paying them poorly relative to what the other end of the spectrum. I mean, you have senior software engineers in Silicon Valley making four hundred thousand dollars. And, you know, the gig economy as we become more and more service based, I mean you don't, I mean, you don't need that much of a technical background to see like, get, I mean, going back to you guys' conversation last week about the minimum wage, I mean, more and more jobs have been stuck in that category. And so that's playing a part in these huge gaps of income inequality, which is a, a major leader in towards of, you know wealth creation. I mean, if you're only making enough money to pay your basic necessities, you literally are not provided the opportunity to save. I mean, what are you supposed to do? I mean you're, you're stuck and so that going back to that earlier thing about social mobility i mean if if our the costs for us to live have gone up and our wages are stuck at the floor for a lot, like a huge portion of our workforce which is you know 180 million people where do you go uh, what are you supposed to do so that has been a, a huge you know that's played a huge part obviously you know the increase of globalization and trade has made the global economy, even more of a race towards the bottom, and not just in pay, but in how workers are treated. Uh, I mean, the decline of union membership in the United States has had a huge impact on the types of things that unions got a lot of the, you know, the basic things that we take for granted, you know, the 40 hour work week was a result of union membership, particularly from the industrial South, the concept of employer retirement contributions, which in itself, IRAs and 401ks, I mean, those were to save money on not doing pensions anymore. So I think what you're seeing a lot over time is that there is more power given to capital owners and less towards labor. And as more and more people join labor and more and more people, more and more money goes towards capital, there's less incentive to, I mean, on capital's end, right? That why would, why pay more? and that's sort of happened over and over and over again especially as you know we've deregulated the economy as more and more power shifts towards those with money and i mean make no mistake power is is money in our our economy whether it's both political economy or just the basic necessities of having money i mean it's sort of you know wealth is beget we wealth and that has been sort of more of a, like a general overview of like back when we had more regulation that protected workers, there was less incentive given towards a race to the bottom like a race towards the bottom. And as we've just started competing with countries with very poor standards of work conditions, those types of practices has, has come here as well. And I think that's been a really hard issue to grapple with, particularly with the political economy issue I mean politicians, do what their, you know, their campaign contributions tell them they should do. And as Citizens United has sort of completely opened the floodgates to that there, it's, it's been really hard to see any hope for legislative changes to these issues, which is, I know kind of depressing, but in terms of the history, that's what has happened. And not just the United States all over the world, the government has taken a more passive role in the labor market and protecting workers. And as a result, we've seen just huge, explosions in in the 1% in their wealth con- uh, concentration. And that's also been seen in taxes. The average income tax for the top 1% in 1981, the average, and this is across the world, was 66%. And today that number is 40. And on the most extreme cases back in 1981, it was 93%. And today the lowest you can find is 15. And I think a really good definition, like a really good way to see this is I I have this statistic in 2007. So these are a little out of date, but this was when the last time they ran the statistic. Real household income increased by 1.2%. If you remove the 1%, that number falls to 0.6. So over half the gains in real income went to the top 1%. And from 1979 to 2005, the after-tax income, this is for Americans, the middle of the income distribution was 21%. For just the 0.1%, one in a thousand earners, it went up 400%. So the wealthiest people's income did 20X the performance of the middle.
1: Well, I mean, that. That illustrates your point, right? Like wealth is power. Power makes the legislation. The legislation supports the wealth of the people in power. Like it's this continuous cycle and it's exponential. And we've been seeing that. And I think that that's something that to to address an earlier point as well, like the whole bootstraps theory, you know, it's always been difficult for poor folks to get out of poverty. It's never been easy. There has never been a structure in place. But we also have to acknowledge that it is just continually getting harder. Even even as there have been some advances in civil rights, I mean, we are far from getting to a place of, of equity and equality in, in that sense. But like, even as some of those things has have improved, the people in power want to stay in power. And they know that their money and their wealth is what supports that. So they're going to keep writing legislation that allows them to maintain that and grow that, right? So we just, we're just seeing this like snowball effect. So it's becoming so clear year after year that these people at the top are just, they're just gonna continue to do that until we literally dismantle all of the systems in place that got them there and that is a daunting task which we talk about a lot but but it's it's daunting once you realize that that is that's really pretty much the only way
0: yeah and i the biggest thing here uh, particularly with wealth accumulation over time is that the best way for the average person to participate really and i i I'm, I'm sort of shifting to one of like the major storage of the average person to accumulate their own wealth is I mean, essentially it's to buy a house. And that's what most people hold their, their money in or their, you know, the assets. It's pretty daunting to think that we talked about earlier, like this, this difference between even within the, the lower income between African-Americans and white people, like from 1984 to 1994, the percentage of white families that have home equity in general was two thirds. For black families, that is thirty-eight percent. So just about almost two times the home ownership of white versus black families. And I'm I'm going back a little bit, you know, in history here, but a lot of this you can trace back to the Housing Act of 1949. And this was basically post-World War II. This was the government wanted to get involved in public housing. And this was the bill that defined sort of the government's role in public housing and how it would subsidize for urban development. Because at this point, urban and suburban development, because for the previous decade, material, building materials in the United States were restricted to just defense, building tanks, planes, guns, to send to Europe. And so up until the last decade for the 2010s, this was the worst period of home building activity ever. So conservatives in that Congress were opposed to public housing, at, at not just for racial reasons, but because at that, not at that time, housing in, in general was reserved basically for white, white families only. But they, you know, classic conservative argument, we don't think the government should be handling housing needs of, of the people and so in an effort to block liberals in congress from from passing this they they put i think a lot of people have heard of like a poison pill which basically they actually put in there that the public housing could not discriminate that was coming from the conservatives but they did that knowing that southern democrats would oppose it and it would put liberals in this weird position where if they supported it they would lose part of their legislative base And so what essentially ended up happening was that this housing program was passed where it, like Nathaniel said earlier, it literally legalized segregation of public housing while also subsidizing suburban development that was already because those the housing market they, these were run by racists who didn't want to sell to black families and they actually included in the deeds a lot of the, of a lot of those houses that you couldn't resell it to black families either. On top of the fact that you were also dealing with redlining, where you know when, you know mortgage lenders were highlighting minority communities that these were considered inherently more risky and they were not going to pass, they were not going to approve loans. And since then, the average home price has multiplied seven to eight X. And if you're looking at a lot of those black families that could afford, and actually it's it's there's data show black families were willing to, to pay more than white families for identical houses that they were not allowed to own. Well, those homes passed generation to generation and not just the actual house, but access to the equity that house provided was restricted to only one, one group of white people that's seen even today. I mean, a large part of that 10 X difference is a complete blocking of minority communities from buying a house in the period where almost all the barriers to home ownership were getting taken down. It's not a secret, especially with public housing, that a lot of black families were, they were all put in one area. Public housing was allowed to be made that way, especially when all the state and local governments were the ones running those programs. And Black families would lower your your house's value. That was their argument. And obviously, that's a complete fabrication. That's a total lie. It was just an excuse to not have to integrate in a time where the civil rights movement was only in its infancy. And I hope we're still seeing that issue even to, even today. Uh, I mean, you have prominent politicians talking about when they were growing up. I think cory booker has a story about that his parents wanted to buy a house uh, and they were both executives at ibm and they weren't allowed to sell so they had their white friends go and give the same offer and suddenly the realtor was much more accommodating at that point so that's like a really big contributor towards a lot of this particularly this racial gap between similar income brackets by race that suddenly the average middle income white family and the average middle income black family are living complete different realities of what is American life. There's just not access. And that goes back to the wealth being more a form of access than just a number on a page. It's a privilege that comes with not only the number of your bank account, but also the color of your skin.
2: This is all very valid, very true information. Like, kind of summing it up, it's this same thing we talk about with class and with power. Like, I'm really glad that you you dove into the, the redlining and, and just the... Kind of keeping it simple with home ownership, like that being one piece of having equity and having wealth. And like there were legal structures in place to keep that from reaching different groups of people. So that I thank you for kind of for explaining that. And then just to, to kind of wrap up, is there, I mean, I know we have already talked about this being something that's very difficult without dismantling. It has It seems to be a, a trend in a lot of these similar topics that we've talked about since we literally started this podcast, but is there anything in, in your knowledge right now that that serves as a, how do we start improving? What can we donate to what sorts of organizations are doing work that tackle this issue? Because we do want to end on how can we direct our efforts? Is there something that that stands out to you or that, that you've seen or heard of that could contribute to this?
0: Uh, yeah. So we've seen a lot of them. So a lot of the ones that can sort of help this issue relate to, I, there, some of them actually are, are a lot of tangentially related issues. So a big one that I know of, they're called Strike Debt uh so they they were something that grew out of the occupy wall street movement and what they do is they basically buy debt on the open market to cancel the like the debt owed like whoever had that debt if they buy it on the open market from creditors and then they forgive it it's a really cool charity i think I've given them a few times. I actually was expecting you might ask this question. So I have some of their their numbers down. They have raised almost a million dollars. And with that million dollars, they have canceled $32 million worth of debt and they also formed it's called the debt collective which is uh it's like a a union of of sorts that they they advocate for disputing like student loans that were used to pay for for for-profit colleges they've they've worked to to help students pay a lot of their student debt off that they may have been misinformed into getting. Students were given false or incomplete information when they agreed to take on loans. And so that's, that's something to me, I think that's a really big deal because our generation in particular has basically been told by our parents, by society, really, that in order to have like our own, like, american dream like like you have to get a college education but the cost to get that college education inherently inhibits your ability to live a fulfilling life and so people that are like conned almost into taking on this burden is one super exploitative and also i mean it's it's people don't ever get the opportunity to to crawl out of particularly because student debt is not something you can dispute in bankruptcy so on top of donating Uh, I think advocating, pushing as, as hard as it can be at times, pushing your representatives to advocate for and write legislation that changes one, how student loans can be disputed in bankruptcy court and also how student loan payments are done fighting for those issues that are super prevalent in our life and for future generations too because this issue's not going anywhere finding permanent solutions for these that go beyond just canceling student debt uh, because if all you do is cancel it but I'll keep the same system it just builds up again
1: yeah no that's that's great i love that there's you know multiple avenues that people can take um i always like to add something in addition to donating money because I know that that's not always accessible for everyone especially as we're talking about you know wealth inequity here. So thank you for that and thank you for all of your great insight today. I think this was a really awesome educational opportunity and as always never never over never enough time to really dive into everything we want to cover but thanks for being here jeff we we really appreciate your background and your insights and and your expertise on this so yeah thanks
0: no of course thanks for thanks for having me just always remember keep fighting for what is right and especially with the issues with wealth inequality in this country there are a lot of things that we can fight to make right
2: Okay. Well, again, thank you so much for joining us today, Jeff, and to everyone listening, please um, share your comments as always. Love to hear it. A very important topic. And we will see you next time. Bye. Bye. Thanks for having me.